Welcome to Smart Healthcare Safety from ECRI Institute, where we have real conversations about real safety issues in healthcare. I'm your host, Paul Anderson. More than 5,000 members across all care settings rely on us as an independent, trusted authority to improve the safety, quality, and cost-effectiveness of patient care. You can learn more about our unique capabilities to improve outcomes at www.ecri.org. Today, we're talking about a new affiliation between ECRI Institute and the Institute for Safe Medication Practices, or ISMP. We first announced this affiliation in November 2019 and made it official with the new year in January 2020. And now we're excited to look ahead with the two organizations' leaders at the impact we can have together to improve healthcare quality and safety. To get us started, I'll ask our two guests to introduce themselves. Hi, uh, Mike Cohen. I'm president of the Institute for Safe Medication Practices. Hi, and I'm Marcus Schaubacher. I'm the CEO and president of ECRI Institute. Thanks for having me. So I always like to start our discussions on the podcast by establishing some of the basics. So before we really get into how the affiliation will play out, you know, in this day and age, we've talked about medication safety for a long time in healthcare. Mike, is that really still an issue? Yes, unfortunately, it is. There'll, there'll always be human error and uh, at-risk behaviors, you know, where people really don't understand the consequences of, say, uh, shortcuts that they take. So those things are still out there. And occasionally, we don't run into it that well, unfortunately, but there's still negligence and reckless behavior even in the area of uh, medication safety, unfortunately. But I, I have to say, a uh, tremendous amount of progress has uh, been made as well. And I, uh, you know, I'd be negligent to not mention that because I think we've really come a long way uh, compared to, you know, 20, 25 years ago. Uh, there's much more focus uh, within health systems, uh, within the professions on uh, safety, medication safety uh, uh, is in particular. And uh, our FDA is engaged as they weren't uh, mm. 20, 25 years ago. Um, our standards organizations like the United States Pharmacopeia uh, manufacturers, um, you know, everybody's listening uh, to to uh, the frontline practitioners out there. Uh, more recently, uh. we know Marcus from, for instance, Ecri Ecri PSO, our patient safety organization, that <clears throat> something like a third of our events that are reported to us are, are around the issue of medication safety, and we actually think that that may even be underreported, right? Because there's still concerns about. Um, you know, punitive environments and so on. So do we have a sense of, of why that underreporting might be the case at all, um, just sort of culturally within healthcare? And, and are there things we can do, particularly with this new affiliation, to help remove some of those obstacles? Hmm. Yeah, clearly, you know, medical errors continues to be a problem. And we we always you know recite the statistics that medical errors still represent the third leading cause of death in the United States, only after uh, cardiopulmonary and cancer, and a large percentage of those preventable medical errors is medication errors in all forms, right? From wrong dose, wrong patient, wrong time, um, to more severe. Things were were um, you know mix up and uh, just wrong delivery and, and honest human mistakes which still happen. And absolutely, I believe there's an underreporting. Right? It is human nature to um, not admit to mistakes, and we 
the U.S. in particular, in comparison to a lot of other countries. You know, I've been a physician in in three different continents in in many many years ago, and we have made tremendous progress, and particularly in the United States, where we try to create the safe haven through the PSO. Um, but I would I would absolutely attest to that there is a a large number of um, underreporting, and we can only continue to educate, uh, continue the non punitive environment, and uh, work with all constituencies. Uh, Mike mentioned the manufacturers, right? That's a key component of this, both on the device side as well as on the drug side, and in an in an era where we see um, significant improvement in drug uh, drug device combination products. Um, this working together, the delivery me- understanding the delivery mechanisms, and then training the users uh, is going to be more and more important. If I may, let me let me add one new co- uh, one other component to this, which is I think going to be even more relevant going forward, and we need to think about it how we address it. Care is shifting. Mm-hmm. Location, right? Yep. It's not happening in the hospital anymore. More and more care. We, we do the initial diagnosis, we in, initiate treatment, but then the care is actually happening in other venues, and those venues are less controlled than the than the hospital environment, okay. and we have less skilled caregivers, be it in a nursing home, be it in a long term care facility, in a SNF be it in the home of the patient where often the patient themselves or a loved one is the caregiver. Now, they are not as trained and as sensitized to the risk of medication errors as our highly trained, sophisticated nurses in an ICU. They don't have the pharmacy to protect them, right? Um, So that creates a whole new ballgame for us where we need to sit with all those stakeholders and come up with protocols, best practices, training, education, and a reporting system. So mm-hmm. we learn about those mistakes and then can um, you know, develop best practices out of it. And that's where the significance of our collaboration is gonna, uh, gonna be um, really tangible because ISMP already reaches out to the community pharmacies. We have a lot of guideline um, developing best practices, analyzing uh, experience. We have our alerts tracking system, so you can immediately see where those synergies are going to come in. Well, I agree with uh, what Marcus said, especially with the culture uh, issues, uh, people being afraid to report. We even have some of the uh, the uh, regulatory authorities right now in the states that uh, literally punish people for making errors, and that makes no sense. Uh, you know, they really need to get behind understanding what cause the error, what sets somebody up for making the error. But I, I think something else that we could do that we don't think a lot about is, uh, you know, there's not a black hole when people report. Mm. We need to educate people more about what takes place behind the scenes within the PSO, for example, all the work that gets done uh, looking at reports that have come through and having experts sit around a table and analyze what went wrong and then come up with safety recommendations and publishing that. And, you know, at ISMP, we interact with the regulatory authorities and the standards organizations like the United States Pharmacopeia. And a lot of good comes out you mm-hmm. know, with things like that. Literally, thousands of changes have been made when you take even a single product and you change the way 
for example, in the label, the, con the way the concentration is expressed, that could affect 150 uh, manufacturers that make changes with multiple products. Uh, there have been many, many, many changes like that over the years, uh, thanks to people listening. So I think we could do more to educate people about what is done when they do report a medication error or another type of medical error. And, you know, and another thing that I don't want to forget to mention as well, and it, to me it's the most, one of the most critically important things that we could do to improve safety, and that is um, acting, well, being proactive. We put out a lot of information through the PSO at ECRI or, or really through ISMP, our newsletters. We analyze every error that comes through. And a lot of times there's new information. Uh, maybe we do want to make recommendations to the Joint Commission for a standards change. Who knows what it might be? It could be uh, changes to a particular manufacturer. Uh, you know, we need people to be reading this material and reacting to it as well. Right now, I think most of the effort has been in addressing errors after they happen, right. not actually understanding what could go wrong by reading the material that comes from ECRI and ISMP and reacting to it right up front. Every time something gets published, you need to be asking yourself, could this affect our patients? Do we have this particular situation or this product in our organization? And you know what? If you do, what would make you think that your nurses, your doctors, your pharmacists are so perfect that they would never make an error like happened at, you know, whatever general hospital? So that's well, an important thing to keep in mind. And to the point of underreporting, what's to make you think it hasn't already happened and you just don't know about it yet? Uh, absolutely. That's uh, absolutely the case. And I, you know, I want to take this one step further and assess there's other industries who've actually solved the problem, mm -hmm. right? So if you look at aviation, uh, nuclear power, uh, they, is, they have a zero incident goal. Right. And if you remember back, I think a couple of years, uh, we had the first time in history that there was no commercial uh, death associated with flying. So with, with, there was no death associated with commercial flying. Right. right. And um, why did that happen? How did that happen? Because all stakeholders came together and said, yes, we're going to commit to this zero incident goal. And what they have developed in collaboration is an escalation process which addresses what Mike was talking about, which is being proactive. So if they're seeing certain patterns happen, they just call a stop. Right. right. They do not go further. So that plane does not leave the gate or that, you know, mechanic does does not go forward with a certain action. While an individual event would have not triggered that, but the combination of those then leads to that escalation process. We don't have that in medicine. Right. It's 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 retroactive. It's left to the individual caregiver or provider or physician. Um, and the it has gone away, in, in aviation in particular, has gone away from being punitive. So if you as a pilot has a near miss and you report it, you're not going to get benched. You're going to get back sent, sent back to the simulator maybe, but you're not going to get taken out of circulation. So that is where, you know, we just need to 
physicians need to agree that they can make mistakes and that right. they need to be retrained if they do. Nurses, same thing. Pharmacists, same things. We don't have this. We are, you know, we're still talking about the, the God in white, right? And mm -hmm. when we yep. think about physicians. While that image has gone a little bit away, but there's still an attitude issue here where, mm -hmm. you know, I'm a physician, so I can say it. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I think um, we need to get to a holistically different approach where we say zero incidents got to be the goal. How are we going to get there? I think it's about being preoccupied with safety. The types of organizations that you mentioned, and probably would add oil and gas as another one that uh, we, we refer to them as high reliability yeah. organizations. And there's really a big push in healthcare now to, uh, you know, adopt some of the measures that they've used uh, in organizations like uh, Marcus just mentioned. Uh, and I think that's critically important. Uh, you know, they really encourage our reporting because they want to learn from it. Right. They use information from the outside. They are proactive. They have signs up. I remember visiting NASA headquarters out in, uh, well, uh, NASA reporting system uh, headquarters out in at Moffett Field in California near San Francisco. And they had signs up everywhere about, you know, the need to report adverse events that happen. We don't do things like that in healthcare, and we need to learn from those organizations. And, you know, fortunately, there is, uh, you know, quite a push to do that. I mean, I think a lot of times there's a perception, particularly among people who are just far enough outside the industry to not know all the secrets, right, that, well, technology is going to fix all of this. And, you know, I always use the example that my handwriting is god awful. And so when I was a kid, the joke was, well, you're going to be a doctor, right? Because doctor's handwriting is terrible. And my perception is as a you know, I'm, I'm an editor, um, is that we've actually largely solved the handwriting and prescriptions problem because we have e-prescribing. But that introduces a lot of other problems on its own. And every technological intervention, right, introduces it, its own problems. So, you know, I, get, I wonder if we could say a little bit about why hasn't technology just fixed everything? Yeah. And, you know, earlier when I was talking about, you know, some of the improvements that we've seen, it has been related to technology. For example, we do barcode scanning now in the pharmacy and at the bedside and, and so on and selecting medications out of storage. That's a big one. Obviously, electronic prescribing. But what you say is absolutely true. There's, there's usually an unintended consequence. And I'll give you a perfect example. We always had this problem with doctor's handwriting. You know, it's been around for years. We're pretty much over the handwriting issue now. We're up to over 90% of doctor offices, uh, hospitals, prescribe electronically. So what we see in the nursing unit and what we see in the pharmacy uh, is a printed order. But you know what? We may have more errors now with electronic prescribing than we ever had with handwriting. And how does that happen? What happens is when um, the prescriber enters an order, they usually type in a couple of letters, three letters, maybe four, and they have a selection of medications that come up on the computer screen. And that's great and would be clear to anyone that reads the screen. But guess what? They're, they're moving so quickly and they're hearing noises in the background. They get interrupted during their work and they read only the first few letter characters and the strength. So instead of metronidazole, 500 milligram, they choose 
metformin 900 milligram, which would be used in a diabetic patient instead of uh, for an infection, and they choose the wrong medication. We get more of those than we ever got with handwritten <laughs> orders. So that's just a perfect example mm-hmm. of what can go wrong. And then you also have the issue with people not using the technology, the bedside scanning I mentioned. Well, you know, we have insulin pens that unfortunately are reused on another patient. That's been a big problem. We've we've cut into that quite a bit, but it's still out there. So we've developed methods to scan the insulin pen to make sure that you can identify that that is for a particular patient, not only the right insulin type, but for that patient. And unfortunately, we still have occasional reports of people that, you know, used an insulin pen on the wrong patient because they didn't actually scan it at the bedside. So there's, that's just one example of sure. probably hundreds that I could give you. Yeah, I think we need to be clear that technology is always going to be a tool, right? Right. It's, it's never the solution. It's a tool, and it will require all aspects yeah. of it. it you, you need to have the right process. You need to have the tr- right training. You need to have the commitment of the human being who interacts with the technology and the process to follow the process because most often than not, it's an opt-out, right? right. The, the process is right. The tool is right. The person just decides to take a shortcut of whatever. Um, and we can continue to try to foolproof things but then we include so much complexity that eventually we're bypassing it again because it got too complex. <laughs> right? So, and a funny story I can tell it because it's 25 years ago. So, we, we, I worked in an intensive care unit. We had you know, post cardiac surgery, 20 beds. Uh, each patient, of course, had a vital monitor, which was connected to a central monitor in the in the doctor's room where okay. we would do you know our paperwork, and that would track every alarm of all of the 20 patients. Now, post-cardiac surgery, a lot of alarms go off. So this monitor in the, in the doctor's office would go off all the time. There was no silence button because they didn't want us to silence it. So we unscrewed the box, cut the cable, right? <laughs> so to the speaker. You will find a workaround if it gets yes. too complicated, right? So that's why technology is always going to be a tool. We need to look at the entire holistic process and then have the right process steps, the right training, the right education, and the right commitment of the human to to do it right. I want to talk a little bit about our, our new affiliation. Um, and obviously, it doesn't come out of thin air. Our two organizations have known each other for a long time. Oh, you know, yeah. I've been at ECRI for 20 years. And when I started, Mike, we you were already well-known. You know, We were already working together on a lot of things. How did you first come to, to know ECRI and, and maybe Dr. Noble, our founder? Yeah, Dr. Noble, uh, Joel Noble, uh, a physician that founded uh, ECRI Institute. Uh, they had an office in Philadelphia, and um, we learned about um, his work in uh, looking at uh, devices that were used in association with cardiopulmonary resuscitation, which was fairly new in the early 1970s, uh, right around the time I was uh, starting in hospital practice uh, here in Philadelphia. And uh, we wanted to put on a program for the uh, pharmacists in the Delaware Valley around Philadelphia. Uh, and it was held at the uh, Benjamin Franklin Hotel, and we invited Dr. Noble and actually uh, another uh, person from ECRI, uh, that uh, uh, we wanted them to talk about CPR and, you know, the equipment that was used. So we wanted to educate pharmacists. We wanted them to get more involved with going to codes at their hospital, which we were doing 
at the hospital where I worked. It was Temple University Hospital, as a matter of fact. And so uh, that was the first time we met. Um, we were on a program together. Okay. And uh, as a result of that and knowing of my interest in CPR, that was my earliest interest. And I got very much involved with the pharmacology and got involved with some of the national organizations, the National Research Council, the American Heart Association had uh, some meetings on it. Um, they asked me to get involved with a program that they were doing for uh, those organizations uh, to teach CPR to physicians and other personnel. And it was the early days of airway, breathing, circulation, and uh, D uh, was adopted for drugs and defibrillation. Uh, and I, I really was uh, very much involved with it. I did a column in one of the journals. And uh, so that's where the interaction began. No, and Stronger Together, right? So yeah. I, I think while we have been partnering in the past, I, I think we're taking this to a whole new level where we can really leverage our um, our expertise, but we can – it's completely supplemental, right? It, it's, there, there's hardly any overlap from an expertise perspective, but from an organizational um, perspective, you know, we can – we have a marketing organization. We have a sales organization. We can bring this together. Um, and it's not just that we're going to be more effective and efficient on what we do currently, but the expertise we have uh, at ECRI, we can look at how do we, ISMP very focused on medication error prevention. There's many other areas in the drug world where we can bring our expertise to bear and say, hey, we can expand the offering for your current constituency as well as for ours, and, and that's where really the power is. That's where this stronger together is really coming to life. Well, and you know, Marcus, you mentioned earlier in a conversation this idea about, you know, okay, care is moving out of the hospital, mm -hmm. and, and that's one of the areas that, that we all see, not just in medication, but every aspect of safety and quality, you know, is, is going to have a huge, huge change in how we do our work to help caregivers do their work. What else do we see? What do we see as the challenges over, I'll say, the next five, seven years that are either new or heightened or, you know, that, that this affiliation will allow us to tackle in a way that we could not have yeah. in 2017? Yeah. So let me let me name a few, and then I think I'll tie it back on, on how this is going to help us. Uh, scarcity of resources, mm -hmm. right? So we're going to, in 2025, we're going to have a, a shortage of physicians or about 100,000 physicians and a million nurses. Care is moving out of the hospital. Um, we're going to see an ever-increasing demand in care, more complex care, because our population is getting older, demographic changes. We're going to see more complex disease states because we're getting better in treating the initial diseases. Very few people die today of hypertension. They're going to live on they're going to get older, they're going to get cancer, they're going to develop secondary diseases over the progression of the disease. So we're going to see much more complex care. What does that mean? It requires more complex care protocols, mm -hmm. which are prone to have more errors, right? If you think about just drug interaction, drug availability, drug safety, those are all areas where... Um, ISMP is not necessarily focused right now, but where we can, with the expertise we have, we can bring this all together. When it comes to 
defining new pathways, defining new guidelines, defining best practices. Both of our organizations have great expertise. If we bring that together, we can address these new care areas. Um, if you think about the shortage of trained personnel, we can help with developing curriculums for those home care services, for example, and so on. And it's always going to be a device medication combination. Um, just a few highlights. Digitalization is a whole different ballgame, right? Mm -hmm. So we're seeing these uh, dramatic increases in apps, which are coming uh, to us. They're all suggesting to be just decision support, so they don't need to get regulated by the regulators. <laughs> in reality, they're decision-making tools, right? Just think about how you use Google Maps. You punch in your destination, and you follow what it's told you. It's not saying that it's a decision-making tool. It's not driving your car, right. but you follow it, right? right? Yep. So, and this is going to be the same with those with those apps, which creates a whole new set of um, issues for us, which we can tackle together. Uh, in yeah, a much and I better think um, we're probably going to see so a lot coming with um, radio frequency identification of drug products right up to the bedside. Uh, already, we're starting to see uh, the use of chips uh, where, for example, they can be placed in storage kits. And uh, CPR would be one area, for example, other emergency kits, rapid sequence intubation kits. And as soon as something is removed, you would be notified in the pharmacy. But beyond that, we see this actually happening at the bedside. Right now, we use barcoding. Uh, it limits the amount of information, though, that you can actually obtain. Uh, a chip that you take to the bedside that can be embedded into a unit dose package, a syringe, even an oral dose can provide a lot more information immediately and uh, help with tracking. And that is something uh, there has been a focus uh, at ECRI uh, on um, uh, the supply chain management. You know, that is one of the things that uh, ECRI has been uh, involved with. And I think that would be very helpful. So it's something that we're looking into uh, where we could work together uh, and work with the uh, organizations that are out there that are developing these systems. One other aspect, I think both of our organizations are trusted partners to bring other stakeholders together. Mm -hmm. But we have different stakeholders. Yes. But they all play in the, in the healthcare field. Mm -hmm. So now we're bringing these two organizations together. What are we getting? kind of the superpower in bringing stakeholders together. In, in, in just one, one example would be, um, you know, we don't have really a, a reach into the community pharmacy. ISMP has. A lot of the care, as we mentioned, is going to be in the home. So where do people going to go? They're going to go to their community pharmacy. So the community pharmacy is going to become more and more health center. That's the whole idea behind the CVS Aetna deal. Right. right? So that they have a storefront Aetna has a storefront where they can catch their, 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 um, their patients and their members to prevent them going down uh, a path where they're becoming very expensive members. Right. <laughs> How can we help in that process? Right? Right. How do we – and we have no access to the, to the community pharmacy today, ISMP has. And, and we can bring a lot to the table. One last question as, as we start to wrap up. You know, we've only the, – the affiliation is really only official official for a couple weeks now as we record this. Is there anything we can say that sheds some light on what we think will be, you know, some of the first uh, things that we'll be able to talk about publicly 
Um, obviously, again, recognizing it's really early. We're figuring a lot of things out as we go. Yeah. So um, I would I would say three areas where we're really focusing on right now get some immediate impact. One is the patient safety office. So we, we how do we bring those two patient safety offices we have currently together? How do we extend our offering? Expand our offering? Um, the publications. Where do we you know have an immediate impact on adding content or expanding the membership? And the last one is in, in the education field. Um, you know, ISMP has been very active in, in education, providing education. We have done some. That's an er- immediate area of where we can collaborate and where we will see a meaningful impact to, to our members and to our um, clients. Those are all really important areas. And obviously, a lot of the thinking is what can we do to improve the information that we provide? What can we do to make other people's jobs not just easier, but um, the work that they do safer and yeah. caring for their patients. That's a big thought behind uh, everything that we're doing right now. But we've talked about a number of other ideas, uh, uh, but those, those three are certainly the ones. I think of consulting, too, would be uh, you know, making our uh, uh, expertise available out there. We both do that right now, so right. there are probably some things that we could do together that would... Uh, you know, be of great help to the organizations that we serve. So we're looking forward to that and many other things in the long term that we'll be doing together. Stronger together, to use your phrase, Stronger Marcus. Yep. It truly is. <laughs> it really right. is. So, Mike, Marcus, thank you both so much for, for joining us today. You can learn more about the affiliation from the Equi Institute website, at www.ecri.org and the ISMP site at www.ismp.org. Keep an eye on both sites for announcements about new initiatives and opportunities to work with us as we move forward. Be sure to subscribe to Smart Healthcare Safety on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts to get our latest episodes. We welcome your feedback. Please visit us at ecri.org slash podcasts or email us at ecri-podcasts at ecri.org.